ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. We often hear about scientific consensus and challenges to the consensus. But what happens when someone dares ponder the boundaries of science itself? Hello, I'm Eric Anderson, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Eric Hedin, author of the brand new book, Cancelled Science, What Some Atheists Don't Want You to See. Dr. Hedin earned his PhD in experimental plasma physics from the University of Washington and conducted postdoctoral research at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, Sweden. He has served as a professor of physics and astronomy at Taylor University and Ball State University in Indiana and at Biola University in Southern California. At Ball State, his research interests focus on computational nanoelectronics and higher dimensional physics. Welcome, Eric. Thank you, Eric. I guess we got two Eric's going here in the same uh, broadcast, but uh, yeah, hopefully we won't confuse each other. Here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Really appreciate you joining. I appreciate being a part of the program. Excellent. So I've really been enjoying this new book, both reading a little more about your personal story and also jumping into the science. In your recent interview with Rob Crowther, you talked a fair amount about the way some vocal atheists put on a pressure campaign that led to the cancellation of your course at Ball State University. I don't want to go over that again in detail today, but for any who may be hearing about your experience for the first time, Eric, give us just a little bit of background. All right. Thank you. I can uh, do that. While I taught at Ball State University, I had developed a honors college course, a seminar in the natural sciences called The Boundaries of Science, and taught it for about six years. We looked at primarily astronomy, cosmology, and uh, other related fields, but also on intention, we had a part of the syllabus that looked at ways in which nature and evidence from nature pointed to perhaps something beyond the natural world. It was a course that was intended to allow students to explore science and its implications and to see if there were any of those implications that pointed to something more, something beyond. And uh, this really came about as a result of student input from mm -hmm. multiple classes that I had taught in years previous to this, where students repeatedly expressed an interest in things that were more than just the hard science, questions related to the meaning and purpose of life. And, you know, is there life after death? And even is there a God? So this honor science course was intended to uh, be a science course. It was a general education science credit approved, but it was also intended to give students a chance to explore these big questions. And so am I correct in understanding that this was not a mandatory class? This was an elective course that students could take if they wanted and that it had been approved by the dean and the college? Exactly. It was all of that that you said. And yet it was very popular. Uh, typically, they set the maximum enrollment at 25 students. And when I taught at fall or spring, it uh, almost always reached that max value. And um, so I enjoyed it. And from all intents that I could see, the students enjoyed it. So that was going on until basically out of the blue, a prominent atheist essentially began to level charges against the university based on what uh, he thought he knew about this course, saying that I was pushing religion on my mm -hmm. students and uh, essentially violating the First Amendment by doing so because it was being taught at a state university. Yeah. So so he kind of mounted a campaign that you were violating the separation of church and state. And, and as near as I can tell from reading your experience, after what I would call a very questionable review process, 
the university mm-hmm. concluded you weren't guilty of that, but then they kind of manufactured another excuse to cancel your course and uh, re- really a remarkable chain of events. And I certainly encourage readers to read the book and find out more about this uh, incredible part of your personal story and, and this really unfortunate experience um, that happened there. But but I'm glad that you're sharing with us today and in future discussions some of the things that you talked about in that course and some of the things that you shared. So if it's all right, let's let's go ahead and jump in. I'd love to. So we'll get into the science in detail, but in the first couple of chapters of the book, you ask us to step back a minute and think about some bigger issues, what you call the boundaries of science in your title for your course. What is valuable for students and what is it that you were trying to get them to think about in terms of the boundaries of science? Well, I think the name of the course um, gave a pretty good indication of the, the main point, and that was to really look at nature and what we have discovered about how it works, and then ask questions that try to get at the root of how much can natural processes accomplish. What I found out again from a lot of uh, input from students over the years was that there were students in my classes who had the mindset that science would eventually explain everything, meaning that the natural world, as described by science, had no limits. Mm -hmm. It could be fully expected to be responsible for everything that we see in the natural world, including ourselves, including humans and all of our accomplishments, all of our individual traits and personality and mind and will. All of that is simply something that could be explained eventually by some law of physics. And so I honestly, (laughs) I'm sure you'll find this if you read the book, but I am not really in agreement with that idea. And so I began to ask questions and let students dialogue and and reach their own conclusions based on what we know about science and then what we know that the laws of nature can accomplish, and more importantly, what they can't. Right. And so this idea that science will eventually explain everything is based on an assumption, right? I mean, certainly your students recognize and we all recognize that science can't currently explain everything. But the idea kind of is that's only because we haven't studied long enough, hard enough, uh, with enough detail. Eventually, we'll have a scientific, and by that they typically mean a naturalistic, materialistic answer to everything if we just keep looking and searching hard enough. And that's one of the questions that you're you're asking them to step back and say, is there a basis for that assumption? Yes, that's that's exactly right. And I think to help them not just have an opinion on the matter, but to have an answer that is informed by the best science, hmm. that's the reason I designed this course to be a science course. Honestly, if I got any complaints from the students about the course, it was that there was too much science in it. <laughs> and um, But I wanted them to know what we've discovered based on you know, the history of science and the laws of physics as we know them, and to really understand what have we discovered about how nature works. And again, things like there are only four fundamental forces of nature. They're essentially push or pull type interactions between bits of matter. And, you know, how much can some push or pull accomplish? You know, and so we'd ask questions like that. Can, can a push or a pull develop a mind? 
Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of uh, just common sense that I think goes into these considerations, almost like uh, intuition that students could use to draw their own conclusions. Yeah, once you help them bring it out, and that's the key, right, is that you have mm-hmm. to help sort of bring these out and give a forum where these questions can be explored, which was the whole point of the the course in the first place and why the university initially thought it was a valuable thing for students to engage in. So that's that's great. So this is great. I think it's really important to get students and all of us really thinking about what science is and how the scientific enterprise works. You asked some key questions. Let's start with the huge first one. How do we know what we know? Well, I'm sure that there are whole books written on that uh, topic. But um, in the boiled down version, I would say that it's based largely on observations that we can make with our own senses, what we see, but also if we kind of step into the more technological age, we can rely upon instruments to help us extend our power of observations to the very small or the very distant with telescopes, uh, even to other than optical wavelengths with instruments that are able to detect, say, x-rays from distant space. So we also learn from others. Someone else has done the experiment and has reported to us their findings, or someone else has had an experience that they can tell us about. So eyewitness accounts from other people that are counted as reliable, their testimony, uh, that forms a large basis of how we know what we know, even within science. Yeah. So the vast majority of us are not going to be doing experiments that tell us about, you know, the distant reaches of space or the molecular world. And so Mm -hmm. at some level, we're all relying on somebody else's account, right? In very large part. Yes. Um, I mean, that that holds true for me as well. When I read about um, the fact that the electron is this small, has this much mass, this much charge, I'm relying upon observations and measurements made by others and written in a book somewhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So another big question is the assumptions of science. I think a lot of us and students maybe in particular coming into college might think, well, science is just on this somehow serene playing field above the fray, but there's some assumptions that are necessary in order for us to do good science. What kinds of assumptions did you talk through with, with the students? All right. Well, I think that one of the more surprising assumptions that comes out is that science is a human enterprise. Like you mentioned, uh, you know, maybe there's a perception of it being sort of a, a clean room laboratory thing that is just out there, uh, very sterile and antiseptic. But science is a human investigation of the natural world. And as such, it relies upon the assumption that humans can understand nature. And it relies upon the idea that what we observe is actual reality. And reality in an an important sense that it's objective and it's out there. And anybody that cares to observe it can, in fact, contribute to the overall knowledge of the way things work. And that ties in with another important aspect of science, known as if you're going to come up with a scientific conclusion, it has to be based upon repeatable observations or experiments, meaning we don't come up with a new law of physics based on just one person's offhand comment that they saw something in a laboratory. It might be interesting, it might be true, but it's going to be held a little bit at arm's length 
until others have repeated the experiment and seen the same thing. There's a, a consistency to the laws of nature, meaning they're also constant in time, and that the law of gravity that um, we might have attributed to Isaac Newton, it's the same law of gravity today. Yeah, and on this repeatability point, you mentioned that while you were working, I think it was over in Stockholm, there was a big to-do in the press about cold fusion. Yeah. And and I remember that as well when I was at the university. What happened with that? Yes, with regards to repeatability, the reports of fusion energy being produced essentially without the superheated conditions that we would find, say, in the core of the sun. That idea that fusion could be produced with cooler temperatures was big news. I was actually working on a fusion energy experiment in Stockholm, Sweden in the late 80s when this news came out, and it was definitely getting everyone's attention. It would revolutionize energy production in the world, but it turned out that it just couldn't be repeated. You know, the experiment was described and others tried to do it and nothing happened. So eventually the whole thing sort of faded away and it's not a, a valid conclusion. So let's dive into the logic just a little bit here. What, what's the issue with the common idea that science is the only way to get reliable answers? The idea that science is the only way to get reliable answers is suspect, primarily because it's, as we've just been talking about, not based upon repeatable observations of the way things work. The statement or concept that science is the only way to truth, only way to get reliable answers, is not a scientific statement. It's an opinion that some scientists may hold, or even non-scientists may hold. We know that there are other ways to find reliable answers that are not based on the scientific method as it's typically described. And so right. even our own experience shows us that there's something else besides science when it comes to finding out reliable answers. Right. Yeah. And, and as you say, it's not itself a scientific statement. If you say science is the only way to find reliable answers, well, well show me the scientific proof for that statement, right? It, it kind of is self-refuting in a way. Yes. So how does the naturalistic worldview impinge on many of the things that, as you talked with your students, and that frankly, all of us find meaningful in life? How does the naturalistic worldview impinge on that? To start with, I suppose that we should define a naturalistic worldview and I would say simply that it's a worldview that says that nature, the laws of physics, the matter and energy in the universe is, is all that there is. And if that's the worldview we're talking about, which honestly tends to be pushed within the scientific realm officially, maybe it's not held by scientists everywhere, but it tends to be the official viewpoint, that naturalistic worldview has serious consequences. One of the consequences is that we, ourselves as humans, are nothing more than a collection of atoms held together by forces, and there's no such thing as a, a soul or an individual identity. There's no such thing as an afterlife. There could be nothing outside of this universe in no ultimate purpose or meaning I think it's actually quite a disaster for the human being to hold that worldview and to take it seriously. 
Yeah, and and beyond, you know, the next slide for anything like that, in terms of our current existence, I think you pointed out in the book that this view would essentially make a mirage of many of the things that we sense and hold precious, you know, free will, reason, uh, sacrifice, love, the idea that each person is valuable. I mean, all of those things are impinged upon by this worldview. Is that is that correct? Yes, it is simply a logical consequence of the worldview. You know, and some who maybe hold this naturalistic worldview would argue that these higher level concepts such as a sense of purpose or or even our free will or our reasoning abilities are what we might refer to as emergent qualities that come about in a complex assembly of atoms such as a human being. But the idea of emergent properties that transcend and cannot be derived from or connected with the underlying physical principles is really, again, not something that is supported by the scientific evidence. And I think that each of us, even if we've never been in a laboratory and we don't know much about the laws of physics, each of us would sense this kind of a discordancy between the idea that we're really just a mirage in terms of meaning and the way we really feel about ourselves. Most people have a sense that they exist and that their life is in some way not just a robotic expression of the laws of physics. And you would argue that it's valuable and important for us to take that sense seriously and not to just push it aside as, oh, this is my molecules or my genes talking. Yes. I think trying to do that, I mean, I'm sure there are people who have convinced themselves that it's all a mirage. I'm not judging anyone. I just think that it might lead to uh, a sense of perhaps even despair, loneliness, um, purposelessness. So again, I can't put that on anyone else. I wouldn't want to, and I wouldn't want anyone to live in that realm. But my experience of life and that of most people is that there is something real about our experience of beauty, our sense of meaning and purpose and the fact that our reasoning ability is not just based upon pure interactions between atoms by the electric force in our brain or something like that. Yeah. And talk to us a little bit about the evolutionary narrative, which has tried to provide an explanation for these kinds of things. But you point out that under the evolutionary narrative, if the focus is on survival and reproduction, what's the tie between that and some of these things we've just been talking about. Yes. Well, again, you can get the details in the book, but um, just in kind of an overview sense, I could say that as is fairly common knowledge, the Darwinian evolutionary mechanism is based upon survival of the fittest with um, natural selection kind of being the mechanism that selects for reproductive advantage. And so the fittest in this case is defined as pretty much the organism that can produce the most healthy offspring. And that really, there's a disconnect between that purported mechanism and the qualities that we find in our own lives. Qualities, say, of the ability to compose music, to appreciate Mm -hmm. art, to live lives of, say, sacrificial service 
or to understand the mathematical intricacies of quantum mechanics. None of that is expected, I would say, from the evolutionary paradigm being a mechanism, supposedly, that was behind the, I guess, sort of culmination of humans being the way they are. Now, that's great. I, you know, you think about things like you mentioned uh, art and mathematics and music and literature and sacrifice and love and service, you know, every, everything that like makes life meaningful <laughs> in a yes. word. Uh, it, it's really not amenable to explanation under, you know, the purely naturalistic narrative, or even if you throw on things like, uh, you know, natural selection as, a, as an attempt to explain this away, it just doesn't seem to fit. Mm-hmm. So, Eric, I think we've got time for just one more question today. One of the interesting aspects you discuss is the role of experts or what I would call in logic, the appeal to authority. Uh, how is this relevant to our approach to science and what do we need to watch out for as we as we do that? As we mentioned, we all appeal to authority at some level as we're relying on others and, and their experiences and what they've reported about their findings in science. But what do we need to watch out for in terms of, of uh, trusting the, the so-called experts? Well, the fact of the matter in the history of science is that the trusted experts aren't always right. That's a matter of historical observation. It is often the case that new scientific developments come about by the work of an individual, and that individual makes a discovery that has implications that might even overturn some previously held concepts that were taken as authoritatively correct. And yet further observations and evidence will back up the new discoveries, maybe at one point only understood or known by one person, literally. And then it gradually will become accepted. But just to say at any one point in history that the experts are completely right is like, mm, no, I'm sorry, that's, that's not necessarily true. We need to be careful with that. Make sure that when you say the experts, you're referring to things that are, in fact, well-established by observational evidence, and not just dismissing data points or evidence or arguments that don't agree, but making sure that pretty much everything can be explained according to the, the theory. So in regards to, for example, the theory of evolution, I mean, I can remember being part of a a statewide scientific meeting where it was put to a vote that evolution should be taught and nothing else. And I remember thinking, wow, if you have to vote and have a majority rule to support your theory and to outlaw contending theories, then you've stepped way outside the way that science is supposed to work, where a theory is upheld or defeated by how well it conforms to scientific evidence. Yeah, that's a really interesting example of (laughs) we're going to vote on what we can tell our students and what we can't. Wow. One more thing in regards to whether or not to trust the experts. I always told my students that when the experts disagree, you get to make up your own mind. Mm. And I think that when it comes to even maybe some people think standard mainline science, 
like the theory of evolution, well, it turns out that there are many experts who disagree with the standard mainline theory of evolution. And not just because of some opinion, but because of their understanding of nature and and the laws of nature and how it applies in that case. So it is important for us to read more broadly, to look at both sides of the question. And even if one of the sides is a minority viewpoint, to examine that evidence carefully and try to reach our own conclusions. Excellent. Yeah, this has been really helpful background, Eric, in terms of what you're calling the boundaries of science. And I'm sure this must have sparked some really fascinating conversations with your students over the years. Yes, I enjoyed my interactions with students um, the most. I mean, that was really, as a professor, what kept me going all the time is the interaction that I could expect with students, especially in a class of honor students, it seemed like they were particularly eager to discuss, even to just express their opinion. And uh, when you're trying to have a discussion in class, that's what you want. Uh, Students who are not afraid to share what they think. And I remember early on when I was teaching the Boundary of Science course at Ball State, the particular class I had at that time had a couple of outspoken students with an atheistic viewpoint, and they were by far the most vocal and opinionated students in the class. And so they were always expressing that opinion in any sort of a discussion. Well, it turned out that other students began to complain a little bit just because everybody wants to have a chance. And so I began to, with these two students, take the conversation outside of class. And we both, after class with was over, had to walk clear across campus, about a 10, 15 minute walk to our next building where we had our next class. And uh, we would walk together almost every day after class and continue the discussion. And I really was able to build a relationship with these students to kind of dialogue with them based on what science says, based on what they'd learned and uh, presenting some evidence that maybe they hadn't heard. And that's sort of interaction I really found valuable. There were many others like that over the years, sometimes just a cup of coffee with a student who had deeper questions. Sometimes a student uh, would even be part of a group that we would have meeting outside of class. I invited those and treasured them. Students are real people. They have real opinions, and they love to be able to go a little bit deeper. Well, thank you, Eric, so much for being with us today. This has been super helpful to get us thinking about some of these critical issues, the boundaries of science, as you call them. If you're willing, I'd love to have you back again to share with us some of the specific scientific evidence that you delved into that points toward meaning and purpose in the universe. Thank you so much, Eric. I would love to join you again for continuing the conversation. Appreciate it very much. Excellent. Thank you for listening to this episode of ID the Future. To find out more about Dr. Hadeen's personal experience, as well as the issues that he shared in the Boundaries of Science, get your copy of Cancelled Science today in paperback or ebook format at online retailers like Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.